You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. New shows every day. Find us at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Folks, if you'd like a personalized copy of my new book, Tales with TR, Fights, Film, and Folklore, plus a personalized 8x10, shoot me an email at terryryan2020 at gmail.com. And for only $25, I'll send it right to your door, plus shipping. That's terryryan2020 at gmail.com. Get your personalized copy and personalized 8x10 today. Ladies and gentlemen, grab your peanuts and popcorn. Baseball is back. That's right. Teams will be getting back out in the diamond this week. Last year's season sure was different, but that doesn't mean it lacked excitement. And this year is poised to be even better. DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, is putting you on the field with a free shot at a share of millions of dollars in total prizes. If you haven't tried it yet, fantasy baseball is easy to play. Just pick 10 players, stay under the salary cap, and pile up points for hits, runs, strikeouts, and more. There's no better way to put your baseball knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at millions of dollars throughout the week. But if baseball isn't for you, don't worry. DraftKings is offering plenty of fantasy golf action for this week's tournament. With millions of dollars in total prizes up for grabs, there's no better place to have skin in the game than with DraftKings. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code THPN to get a free shot at a share of millions of dollars up for grabs this week with your first deposit. That's promo code THPN to get a free shot at a share of millions of dollars with your first deposit only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit is required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to episode 46 of Tales with TR. I'm your host, Terry Ryan. And what a guest we have today. I always say that I'm like Conan O'Brien. Ever watch Conan? He always... He, he brags about the guests so much <laughs> that it becomes numb. But uh, I, I always say that. And I love all my guests. I mean, I have so many interesting friends. I've only had, what, 46 guests. So, I mean, I can continue to say that without lying. But in this particular case, Brant Myers is a very, very, very interesting cat. I'm going to tell you about Brant. Brant was 
well, he is tough, but Brand, I mean, tougher now than ever in many ways. But when I came in, you know, my listeners now, most of you know the story about me moving away from home at 14 and playing in Quinnell and making my way to the WHL. Well, when I was 16 in the WHL, which is my rookie year in the, you know, the 14, 15, I was in junior A. You're not allowed to play major junior till you're 16. With the odd exception, I, I played a few at 15 with that exemption status or whatever, but you know, it's my rookie year. So in the dub, so it's a 93, 94. And anyway, I just keep hearing about this Brant Myers guy. And a couple of years before that, he'd led the league in scoring and he'd been up and he, or no, sorry, led the league in fights, not scoring. Although, although Brant Myers is a way better scorer than you think, because he only ever went out there to, to fight for the most part. But, this particular year I'm talking about, I believe he had 60-odd points. Um, very, very good player and extremely tough. But anyway, I mean, there was lots of tough guys. If I was to go down all the tough guys in our league that you would probably recognize, uh, I don't know, Wade Belak, uh, Rocky Thompson. Oh, God. Uh, Chris Murray at the time. Sheldon Surrey. Rob Skurlak, Kevin Sawyer, uh, Reed Lowe. The boys to call, call him Speed Slow, uh, although he's real tough. Oh, God. Half of Saskatoon's team, Chris McAllister, about 6'7". Zdeno Chara, right? Oh, God. Dale Parenton. Anyway, I can go down, and I'm, I'm, I'm leaving him out. Every team had multiple some teams like half a dozen or more real tough guys in that era in the whl and uh so i come in at 16 and yeah he was in lethbridge which was the other division we only had to play them twice but then brank got traded to spokane i'm going to tell a story when he comes on about the particular day or day after he got traded we played them in tri-cities but um he was a really just, you know, the type of hockey player that's not only tough, but you feared him. At least in my dressing room, I heard, not, you know, I lived out West long enough. And of all those guys I mentioned, in my mind, in our team anyway, you know, it was Brant Myers. I hadn't even ever seen him play yet when I first got there. And I just, he was a level above everybody. He's kind of like Bob Probert in the NHL. Okay, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you see the odd one probably loses, but he's the heavyweight. He, he's the champion. A lot of guys from that era would say it. A lot of people put him number one. It was like that with Myers. I don't know of him losing. I'm sure he must have slipped on a banana peel or glove or some shit. But anyway, he was just to be feared. And for good reason, he just came. So, he, you know, he went on, he played in the NHL. Um over 150 games spread out over, uh, you know, the better part of a decade, I guess. Um, or more, really, you know, consider when he went left to, to go play in Portland as a 16-year-old, not knowing what he was going to turn out, you know, how his hockey career was going to turn out. Anyway, he started fighting and... Anyway, went on to the NHL, and I mean, real tough, but uh, Mizey couldn't stay off the booze and eventually drugs. 
I didn't realize it. I've always known Mizey. I've become closer with him in recent years. But we had a great mutual friend, Sheldon Surrey. So Surrey was with me in Quinnell, BC, right? My 14, 15-year-old year, junior A. He's a year older than me. But Sheldon's really only three months older than me. But a year in hockey terms. But Sheldon's got a birthday, late birthday in the year. Mine's in January. Um, or Sheldon's in the middle of the year, I guess. Whatever. But who cares when the birthday is? Point is, Sheldon, um, and I really hung out with him. The year would end in Quinnell, and I had some relatives in Edmonton, but I would go there here and there, and I would often just hang out with Sheldon for the weekend or whatever it might be. In fact, at the NHL draft, the day I actually met Brant Myers was the day after the NHL draft because it took place in Edmonton. And Sheldon asked me to go up to Fishing Lake, his hometown, and meet some of his friends and relatives. And it was a nice break because it was a while, it was a while outside of Edmonton. Uh, you were talking, I, I don't know, a few hours, I guess, north east i think north anyway but of edmonton um and, and, it, and it was nice and but i met brand i i remember we were sitting there we had a few beers there was a fire barrel kind of going um a few of sheldon's buddies i believe were fishing as the sun went down his father was there and um richard god rest his soul he's passed now Sheldon's father, but uh, we, we had a great night. I, I just remember being in awe of Brant Myers. Like he was sitting there and just, you know, the, he had the tan, he had his hat on backwards, the frosted tips, jean shorts, drinking a Budweiser, you know, clearly the toughest person I'd ever come across to that point, hockey player. Uh, and just seemed like he had the world, world by the balls, you know, and you don't know the struggles people are going through. You don't know the backstories of everybody. And, you know, at the time, you just think everybody, at least I did. I did. I can't say, I can't speak for everyone, but I just thought that, you know, in, in when you get to a league like the WHL, all these players that train and are so talented and, you know, they they all just have a perfect life, like Pleasantville, you know, they, they, they don't have any problems. Well, I might be the only one that's insecure. I always felt like that, you know, and in recent years, mental health, Awareness has really been improved, and and I often I often am down on social media, but in in th things you know, social media is good for a lot, and I think to raise awareness, it's great. Things like mental health, we needed to end that stigma because I'm, I'm telling you, when I was 16, I definitely thought, or you, you know, my whole career. But when you're a rookie, it really hits home, right? There's a microscope on you a little bit. And you're looking through the world with a magnifying glass that everybody else probably doesn't see. So I, I was a Newfoundlander in Kennewick, Washington, you know, when I first got to the WHL. I, I just felt insecure and I didn't want to talk to anybody about it, you know. And here, the, the, of the, I mean, I thought everybody in the league was, in a way, I don't want to use the word superior, but stronger than me. I didn't think anybody, you know. I was from Newfoundland and, you know, I played junior when I was 14 and I was coming in and I always felt like the little cog in the wheel, you know, don't take them too seriously kind of thing. That's the way I thought at the time, you know, the, the reasons, I don't know. You'd have to ask my therapist, but I'm just telling you the way I, I, I don't know. I, and I thought, you know, in the years later, I talked to Sheldon. I thought Sheldon was the, just the cornerstone of confidence, good looking guy and never seemed rattled at all. 
Brant Myers, the toughest guy in our league. I would have thought, you know, this, this guy doesn't get rattled by anything. He's probably never cried. Uh, he's only knocked people out when they fought, you know, like a Paul Bunyan type of a big, confident character, burly farmer from out west, you know. That's what I had in my mind. But people are vulnerable, man. And Brandt, you know, they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, you know, that's that's meant to be a good saying, and I suppose it is a nice positive saying. But in Brandt's case, you know, you, you're a five-year-old, and your stepfather's going to beat the shit out of you. And your mom is, is soon going to turn her back in a way. We'll get into that. You're raised by your grandparents. Right? You get a big brother and he, he treats you poorly. Big brother, I mean, program. Big brother, big sister. I just read all this in the book. You get into boozing. You start realizing you have confidence with boozing. You're tougher when you booze. And then all of a sudden you've got demons. And fighting is the only way to forget it. And boozing and coking and whatever. And that's uh, Brandt's story. And he tells it with honesty, that I, I, unparalleled honesty. At least in people that, you know, I, I know there's some great books out there, some great hockey books, and some people that have revealed things that I only hope never happens to anybody that I'm close with or a relative. Or, but it's different from this perspective because Brandt's my buddy. So, I, I, you know, I can relate to this whole book and there's things in there. Um, you know, again, I, I don't want to underestimate a, a chemical addiction to something. But I have, I do relate to a lot of what he says in here. He's talking about, you know, when it, it, there's a lot of pressure, A, to be in a hockey player. And it's a bar culture. And, you know, you usually get together in the pub and have a drink and some wings, whatever, talk about the game the next day where, you know, because it's so, I mean, it's physically demanding and it's very mentally demanding. People don't realize how mentally demanding it is. And there's pressure. And especially if you got to go out there and fight guys. I, I remember, again, I had Matthew Barnaby on last week and we were talking and when you're actually in the fight, you don't feel much that if you haven't been in one, that almost sounds like they're, they're exaggerating, but I'm serious. I don't know if it's the adrenaline or what it is, but when I'm in a hockey fight, that's why I would leave myself open so much. I, I really don't feel it. I, afterwards, I do now, and the next day especially, you get a sore face and everything, but I, I wasn't scared of the act of fighting, the violence of it. And when I explain it from my perspective, I can't explain it from Brands, but I, you know, people often talk about the anxiety that comes before fighting. There's a huge anxiety to it that a lot of scorers don't have to go through. Uh, they, not that they don't get anxiety. If they don't score, they're out the door as well. And you can't make yourself score, but you can make yourself go be physical, right? I can't say I'm definitely going to put that puck in the net, but I can say I'm going to go grab Wade Belak or Rocky Thompson or whoever. And that is nerve-wracking. Now, whether you're scared of a punch, knowing you're going to do it. I've often talked to people that play another sport or scorers and ask me to compare the anxiety. 
put it this way. If I knew I was going to take a penalty shot, if, if this was Monday, okay, what, today's Wednesday. I'm recording this on Wednesday. Okay, we're going to release it on a Thursday. So let's say on a regular hockey week, I have a game on Friday. If that game is going to be physical and I know that I might fight in it, and, you know, I, I'm thinking, and I, I, if, if there isn't even a chance I, I might, I want to get it over right off the bat. I don't like playing with anxiety. I don't play as, play as well. But it's not necessarily the anxiety of getting my, my head bashed in. And I'm not trying to sound manly when I say that. It's the anxiety of going out in front of 20,000 people and being embarrassed in front of, your, in front of them and your teammates. That's what gives you anxiety. And you can go out and be as prepared, and Brent gets into that in the book, you, you can be as prepared as possible, right? You could have done everything right. But that fraction of a second that you leave yourself open is when George LaRock might break your face. You know, it's, it's a gamble. It's a rush, though, because it's a gamble. So afterwards, you come in, like I remember the first time I fought Domi, I, I don't know if there's any... Whew, like coming in the room, you know, and you being me being nervous three days before I'd never played an NHL game. I have a, a decent camp and Jacques Demers, uh, God love me. You know, he's the coach that drafted me and Serge Sabard and Demers called me aside and said, you've had a pretty good camp. Not great, but he said, you've worked real hard. And I believe that was the camp I fought for sure. You know, I was a kid, man. I was, Anyway, I, I did what I could. I did score a couple shit goals in front of the net, but there was enough rookie games and exhibition and all that, or inter-squad. But usually these exhibition games, you know, the first couple you might play some real rookies, but you don't keep them all the way to the end because the last couple of exhibition games are in NHL ranks. So Mr. Demers said, if you want an NHL game, your, your team is opening up Tri-Cities, meaning in junior, against Spokane tomorrow night. But he said, we'd love to keep you for a few games and get your feet wet. Like he was asking me, <laughs> I was, yeah, right. I'm definitely playing. The first one was in the forum. That's the only one I knew I was playing. He said, you want a game in the forum? And I fought Steve Leach. That was kind of spur of the moment. Didn't have to do it. Not anybody in the rink. So I didn't have that much anxiety. And I only had like, I believe not much time to think about it. He, I think Mr. Demers asked me that the day before the game. In any case, I'm going to have a lot of anxiety because it's my first NHL game. So I wasn't thinking about fighting or scoring or anything. I was just thinking about going around warm-up without falling down, right? I was thinking about, you know, being in the room and not stuttering when I was talking to Patrick Waugh, right? That, that's the kind of things that gave me nerves. But, you know, then he said after the game, and I scored a goal, and I had a great fight with Steve Leach, and he said, hey, you know, you want another game? We're playing in Maple Leaf Gardens. And, you know, it's soon going to be ripped down. Wouldn't you like to say you played a game in Maple Leaf Gardens? I was like, yo, of course. So anyway, went out. I won't tell the Taidomi story again, but, but you know, I was nervous. And, and that it's one thing to be nervous. But after the fight, though, right, when I came in after that rush of fighting Taidomi at Center Ice in Maple Leaf Gardens. Now, before this, my biggest game was the playoffs against Kamloops Blazers in junior, which most of the hockey world didn't even know was happening. And before that, it was Cornell. And before that, you know, just a few years previous, my biggest game was the uh, Mount Pearl versus Cornerbrook in the provincial final. All of a sudden, I'm in the NHL. I'm where exactly where my dreams are, have always led me. And, and finally, I'm wearing the jersey I grew up loving. And I mean, you almost 
take a deep breath and it, you almost cry. And I know that some I'm almost there now. It's that breathtaking. And I know people must have that feeling. But I was doing all that and and fighting Taidomi. It was so. And so I went in the room and I just remember being like, whoa, like. I, I just it, it's hard for any drug to match that feeling, but that gets addictive and it also creates anxiety every time. It's this huge catch 22, right? Because I, I especially for me, when I made the you know junior, I was like. It was almost a, a little bit of a, I didn't have to fight anybody, you know, maybe three times all year or something, but, but I wasn't the guy. I was more of a s scorer than anything then. I mean, myself and Damon, but we would, we would mix it up, but you know, we had Rob Butts and Ryan Brown and Jeremy Thompson and God, everybody would fight Ryan Marsh and, uh, you know, so we really, Chad Cabana, great leadership, jump in for us. Yeah, so if me and Lanks, you know, at the end of the game, the odd time we'd grab somebody or, you know, if we wanted to settle a score. But if I looked and, you know, now we played with passion, but I just didn't feel that kind of uh, anxiety to fight as much because it wasn't there. But, I mean, you're still nervous to you need to go out, and, especially in your draft year, and there's pressure to score and, and kill penalties and all those things. I just mean there's there's something a little bit different, and you're – your mindset that the thoughts become a bit visceral <laughs> when you, you know, you got to fight a guy like Brad Myers or whoever. Right. <laughs> but, um, one sec. Um, anyway, Mizey gets into all that. So if you happen to have a hankering for addiction uh, and, and booze and pills and Coke or whatever, it's going to be tough because the fighting and the anxiety that goes with it, uh, the anxiety that leaves, leads up to a fight or even an NHL game, it doesn't necessarily have to be that. I just know what he means when he says it. You know, so it, it, Think of it like a score scoring. Uh, trust me, it's great to score a goal. You, uh, most people listen to this, you played some level of hockey or soccer or, or sports, I'm assuming, right? Um, if you didn't, so be it. it. Welcome to being a fan. But if you did play those things, and even now, if it's rec hockey, you know, why do you want to score? Why do people keep and shoot you know they like the feeling of scoring well now picture that biggest game that you've had now picture doing it in front of 20,000 people nearly the population of Mount Pearl where I sit and do this podcast right now and it's being beamed into millions of houses all over the world and especially in Canada where it's the biggest sport known to your country and you're going to go out there and score a goal or get in a fight or make a big hit or whatever it is. And then you come off and you put on your clothes and you leave the rink and you go from being Superman man back to being Clark Kent. Right. And it, you, you often chase that. I, I know I'm, I've been there. I identify what he's talking about. I've had late nights too and all the above, everything he talks about, but you know, I'm not comparing. I, I, I knew and, and so far, I mean, not always because I've screwed up here and there, but I mean, I, I generally knew where to draw the line. You know, there are lots of players I played with. Jeez, you know, some nights, certainly we we had a few too many, but it wouldn't lead to like drinking until eight in the morning while we had practice. Like, I don't remember that once ever, but Brent made a habit of it and he had no control over it. And it's just a fascinating story. I don't want 
to give anything away just in generally that I'm telling you right now, I laughed, I cried. Um, I got emotional one way or the other dozens of times reading this. Uh, before we start the interview, I just want to tell you people that I'm really proud of this guy. I can't reiterate enough how tough he was and how much he overcame. Please get the book. It's called Painkiller, and you won't be able to relate to anything I'm saying uh, until you read it for yourself. And what he came through, what he overcame, how he got there, and the man he is now, I'm nothing but proud, and it shows you that Redemption can happen and people can turn over a new leaf. And uh, now having inspired millions, literally millions of people and more and more by the day, um, I think timing is everything and Brand Myers has arrived. And like he says in his book, February 17th, 2008 was the first day I was really alive. And you're more alive than ever, my man. Okay, folks, without further ado, I'm going to bring him on. Stay tuned. Brent Myers coming up. Can't wait. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, my next guest played over 150 games in the NHL has been, and has been protecting hockey players one way or another since 1990. His new book, Painkiller, is incredibly honest and currently selling out all over North America. It tells a story of hockey, addiction, redemption, amongst other things. It's one of my favorite books ever, Hockey or Not. He is a proud papa, an honest Albertan, a hell of a hockey player, a fabulous father, a fine friend, an amazing author. He'd give you hell back in the WHL. He liked to hit the pub when he played in the dub. For goodness sake, he grew up in Cold Lake or near Cold Lake. We have a mutual friend who we call Shell, who also played in the WHL. He fought Stefan Quintal one day. I was a hab. He was in Tampa Bay. In Tri-City one night, the whole rink shook when he hit Ryan Marsh with a big left hook. You liked the pod when I had on Biz. This, also, this dude also tells it like it is. He used to drink and do late night rips in jean shorts and here with frosted tips, but he found redemption. It's no longer snowy since 2008, the birth of Chloe. They loved him in Philly when he played for the Flyers. Ladies and gents, it's my pal, Brent Myers. Mizey, how you doing? <laughs> Honestly, dude, we got to We just end it. Can we end it after that? Because that was, that was thanks for your time. I have just one question. What is reality? And then we'll go. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no shit. That was amazing, man. Um, wow. So, so, I mean, I loved your book, first of all. I absolutely, you're, you're a friend, obviously. But not only did it resonate with me, because there's so many friends and so many themes and so many similarities in our careers, but I don't know if I'm, I've read a lot of books you know, about hockey, about uh, sobriety, about addiction, about redemption, about love, about hate. And you seem to tell this story now with such calmness and confident confidence because I saw some interviews before I read it. And as I'm reading it, Mizey, I just can't believe it. So here's where we're going to start. I'm going to read the acknowledgement at the back. I want to thank Dan Cronin, Dave Lewis, Brian Sean, Dave Lewis from the NHL and, w and NHLPA. Thanks to my coach, Daryl Sutter, who cared more about Brant the human than Brant the hockey player. It's good to know. 
Thanks to my tribe of sober friends in Los Angeles, to my editor, Nick Garrison, thank you for your professionalism and vision to take this journey together. And thanks to my sixth grade teacher who told me to stop practicing my autograph because I'd never play in the NHL. I love that you remembered that. <laughs> yeah. How do you not forget that though, buddy? So, right? and into a, to a lot of people, if my grade six, six teachers said that to me, that yeah. would be the most adversity I faced that year. Yeah. I mean, you're Mizey. I don't know how, like it opens up and like, I'm, I'm reading about the craft dinner or you're, you're having pizza. You're watching a program with uh, your, your Puff sister, the magic dragon, Puff the magic dragon. <laughs> and all of a sudden, so, you know, let, let's just call a spade a spade. So this yeah. Brad, your stepfather yeah. at the time mm -hmm. was a jackass. So he's you. You saw him physically beat up your mom, right? Oh yeah. I mean, <clears throat> like how you know, old were you? I know you're. you're yeah, you, I was talk, five. Was that the first you saw it? Yep. Yeah, and I, I I remember clear as day. He was laying on the floor with his with his head on his hand on his on his elbow watching TV, and I was sitting on the couch. And my mom said something to him. I don't know what it was. I just remember him getting up really fast and running into the kitchen and we were in a trailer. So it wasn't very big. The kitchen wasn't very far away. And, um, the next thing I remember, my mother was screaming and he was, uh, like, uh, stomping on her head, on her face, on the, on the ground. So then I get up and I, we, the door was straight across. So I run for the door because I think she said, go get help. And then Brad came and uh, I just remember he had his hand around my neck or my head or something like that. And basically said, if you leave this trailer, everybody's, you know, going to fucking kill everybody. But the, wor the worst part about that is that I heard the cop sirens come. Um, and uh, I thought that was, that was awesome. I, I knew that police were, I thought police were, they are great people. I'm not saying they're not, but they came in and then they left after 10 minutes and she already had a black eye from what happened. And that was back in 1979. So, yeah, it was, I mean, things have changed a lot, but uh, that was uh, what happened. So, I mean, that's, that's a lot for a kid to take. And where was your own father at this time? I, I'm not sure. I, I didn't really know much of my dad, Bob. Um, it wasn't, I would get a Christmas card from him uh, with money in it. I remember that. And then um, he would pick me up later, a few years later when I went to my, to live with my grandparents and he would take me and my sister to Edmonton to, you know, I just remember him making clam chowder soup and uh, watching hockey. That's all I really remember when I was young. So those, yeah, the memories stand out because there wasn't many of them, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> while this is happening, while the young Brant Myers is, is finding his way around his childhood, he's also playing hockey, but at the same time, the Edmonton Oilers are becoming the biggest sports story on the planet mm -hmm. in Edmonton, Alberta. Yeah. Which nothing wrong with Edmonton. I just, the biggest sports story on the planet is not often doesn't come from Northern Alberta <laughs> and you're watching these things. So was hockey an escape or was hockey? You loved it because everybody else did, or would you, you know, this, this shit's going on. You, you must have your outlet, you know, for me, it wasn't always hockey, but it was sports. I would grab if I, you know, I didn't go through that, but mm -hmm. there are things I won't get into right now, but you know, there, everybody faces adversity. Was hockey an escape like booze was later on? 
I I would think so in a in a weird way. I I, I knew that obviously uh, the more time I spent away from uh, the trailer park, um, the better. So for me, that equated putting my hockey bag over my shoulder and going to the outdoor rink. And I do remember loving it. Like I, I didn't know how to stop back then. I just remember sort of running myself into the boards and helping myself along. Um, I do have that memory. Uh, but yeah, that hockey for me, um, as some people say, when they sit down and play a piano, it just sort of makes sense to them. And that back then it, it made sense that a really, like if you would have told me at five, what, what do you want to be? I would, I would have said a hockey player. Okay. And not necessarily a fighter early on. Oh no, 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 no. I never actually wanted to be a fighter. Yeah. It's wild. it's wild. I say this because, you know, my introduction to Brant Myers, I was a 16 year old. You're 19. There couldn't be any more. You were like Paul Bunyan. You know I mean? like there was the stories didn't even, it, 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 there was no way you were a cartoon character. Two years before that you'd led the WHL in fights. And I was playing like uh, Pee Wee here in Newfoundland it, it, or three years before, you know? So uh, to me, a lot of what I'm reading Although it shouldn't be shocking, I just never really. Brant, the cartoon caricature, was uh, almost larger than life to, mm. to me and to a lot of us. Mm. So I, th I, I think this must have been therapeutic for you to write, but for, for even me to read as a hockey player. Now, I'll, I'll go further with it because I, I, a lot of the same things. I had to move across the country, but, you know, growing up, never really thought about the the, the off-ice things that would get in my way. And, and I'm not just talking about booze. The first thing I'm talking about, pretty good. Come in, you, you go to Junior B. I'm not sure for how long, but early on. And these guys are hazing, right? And, and they're treating one of your equipment managers yeah. you know, pretty rudely. And you're mm -hmm. also in love at the time, or, or at least... Yeah, I was. You know, yeah, I was. So you've got to, you know, even though your home is not far, but you it's within Alberta, but you still got to go make that jump. So now you're in junior. Mm -hmm. Did your instincts then kick in? Not that fighting was instincts. Mm -hmm. It was instincts from a point of view that I'm, I can like for me, I, I'm the same thing as when I got to get still go on the ice. There's the puck. My thinking is put it in the net. It's never like I can't wait to beat somebody up. Um, but. Did you get physical? Like how many games did you play? Cause you ended up going back, right? Mm. Yeah, I was 15. Um, I made the team uh, as a 15 year old for junior B as a, as a playmaker. Um, that had nothing to do with me playing tough at all. Yeah. Uh, so they thought that I could help the team scoring goals and I played 10 games. And then that stuff happened with, uh, <clears throat> those fucking animals on there. And, uh, my dad said, my dad said, you're done. You're, you're going to, you're going to play midget. I know it's only midget double a in Bonneville, but you're going to play there. So now your dad's in your life. Yeah. I moved, Wait. I moved, I moved in with my father when I was 12 for, for one year in Edmonton. And then my, my dad ended up losing. I just remember they came and repoed everything. Um, and I was and really been sad with your grandparents before that. Yeah. All the way up until the age of 12. Okay. And I just remember I was really sad that, that, um, I had to go back and live with my grandparents because that 12 year old year was amazing with my father. Yeah. We did everything together. He took me to shinny every night at seven o'clock and um, yeah, it was just tough on me. Uh, and then I made uh, the junior B team at 15 after 10 games, I left and played midget. Um, and I played a ton 
and midget. Um, and then that was when I went to my first ever Western hockey league camp when I fought a backup goalie for my first fight. And I didn't, I didn't know what hand to throw. I didn't know anything other than this, this goalie standing at center ice, uh, with no helmet. And, and I'm like, okay, here we go. And then I grab on with my right hand and I start throwing left hands. And the next thing I know there's blood everywhere and I'm getting high fives from everybody and everybody's telling me what a great job I did. And then I'm like, Hmm, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So I can do this. I can do this again next shift. Yep. (laughs) And like I've often said to people, like when you're in that situation, you can't make yourself go score a goal. But don't yeah. you find like there's a level of you can you can do that or you can at least throw a big hit and, and usually you can steer yourself towards a fight and it gives you a bit of confidence around every like you know what I mean I, I love that and that would often get me in <laughs> again I'm coming at it from a different angle I'm just there there are certain things I relate to um, mm-hmm. because for me it would often put me at ease I didn't mind the the, the punching in the face the anxiety of of the whole thing. I haven't done it yet and I don't know anybody would be overcome by the fight itself and then Mm. doing well and getting some acceptance. Um, So yeah, this is Portland, Portland camp. Yeah. Winter Hawks. Yeah. Winter Hawks. You make Portland, you go down, you buy a red Camaro. Yeah. It was a funny story about the red Camaro. So uh, my dad's, my dad and grandpa said, if I saved half the money, they'd pay the other half. So I found a red Camaro in Edmonton on a used car lot back in, uh, I don't know, 80, I don't know, seven or something, 88, 89. And, uh, it was $2,800. So anyways, I get this car and I failed grade six, right? So I'm the only guy driving a fucking school in a red Camaro in grade nine. <laughs> so, <I'm> t- <laughs> oh, so, boy. I, so all these kids are showing up on the bus and I'm pulling up in the Camaro and, and uh, taking brandy out for, um, I take brandy. So my grandma would give me $5 every day for lunch. Cause she worked at the hardware store and she, she was just busy. So I'd put brandy in the Camaro and, and I tell her that whenever I took a left-hand turn coming out of the light, that she had to hold the door shut. Cause there was no Springs. The fucking door would fly <laughs> open. <laughs> <laughs> so she'd, and I there was totally no, picture that. there was no stereo. So I had a ghetto blaster in the back cranking skid row on the way to McDonald's for lunch. And, uh, I'd spend five bucks on me and her every day. We'd get a Big Mac, split fries, and sp- split a Coke. That's fantastic. Um, uh, so, and your and what is it, by the way, about that? Is, did you know you you must have known Sheldon around this time? Our buddy Sheldon Surrey. I did talked a bit in the preamble. I know that you're good buddies yeah. with him. So am I. But I was in Cornell with him for ninety one, ninety two, ninety two, ninety three because. Mm, he's he's mm. a few months older than me but second year but so my two bantam years i played junior a in quinnell with the rocky mountain junior hockey league now it's the bcj um but sheldon showed up in a in the (laughs) tri-city we went down there together so we evolved together and he showed up in this uh stingray it was uh, he had the corvette yeah (laughs) yeah like the 1980 or 81 stingray everybody and a few more guys showed up (laughs) i remember adam retchlag a few guys said if you're from edmonton you seem to have this classic sports car you oh yeah but it's great oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right we're not talking to you. um oh gosh so you get a job you're working um with car parts where it's car stereos oh yeah you tell a pretty and what i was amazed so you 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 essentially steal some parts here right and you get caught 
Well, you got to remember, remember I had no stereo in the Camaro, right? No so stereo I had in the get, Camaro. I had, I, had to, I had to find a stereo somehow. And so, so you, <laughs> so you I will worked, make it work. You, you will find it. I will find a stereo. So I worked at a place called Select Furniture in Grand Center, Alberta. And I just remember seeing all the in- inventory down in the basement. And I'm like, holy fuck, Alpine? Like, this shit's good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I grabbed my backpack. And uh, I put about two, I think $2,000 worth of uh, stereo equipment in. My grandma found it in my room. And uh, next thing you know, I'm standing in front of a judge. So you're grand- it's funny. It's my grandma found it. Yeah. And she said, I think it looks somebody might have stolen it because the wrapping is still on. I'm like, oh, no. So she called around. Sure enough, they, they uh, said it was stolen. And they gave me uh, community or the, community service or whatever it was. So 30 hours at some red to mow grass. Um, but the judge told me, judge Fraser said, listen, Brand, he goes, I know that you're listed by Portland. He goes, you know that I could stop this right now. And it, he goes, but I'm not going to, I'm going to give you community service. I never want to see you in here again. You know what? That really scared me because I was so close to making it to the Western hockey league. Um, and uh, it's funny, about four days ago, this girl, Janine, messages me. She goes, oh, I remember that stereo. My dad owned that store. <laughs> I'm like, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, hey, Janine, how you doing? I, uh, but anyways. Okay, Mizey. So now you're in Portland. Okay. You, when you describe fighting, I find it interesting. You say your biggest fear is being embarrassed. Right, your your biggest fear is to be embarrassed in the fans and the teammates and to let them down, which is interesting. I, I especially found that for a sixteen year old to be that <clears throat> I guess self aware. Because at sixteen, most players are just getting used to the league. Oh you're, geez, yeah. You're I mean, how many fights did you have as a sixteen year old in Portland? Um, I believe it was around 22 or 23. Uh, at that time, my father did tell me that, um, I needed to, to, out of all the 16 year olds, I had the, I had to have the most fights. So like, how did he say that? Like, how did that come up? He just, he just said, uh, son, um, you know, in order for you to get noticed this year, uh, you're going to have to be the toughest fucking 16 year old in the, in the Western hockey league. Now, hands, hands down. So how did you take that? Because, I mean, part of what he's saying, I, I don't think you necessarily had to, but in doing that and being 6'4", 220, whatever you were, you're 6'4", I don't know what you were then. You know, part of him, I guess, isn't wrong, but mm-hmm. even then it's a little much to say to a 16-year-old. Or did see, yeah. uh, the, the, I mean, the next year, didn't he tell you you had to lead the whole Canadian <laughs> Hockey League? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I looked at my, I I did. I looked at my dad. I looked at my dad as a, as a, almost like a, like a, a hero, like a superhero. So when your dad's telling you that you need to do something to get to the national hockey league, you're going to do it. So having 22 or 23 fights as a 16 year old set me up in that summer, I put a lot of weight on because I only weighed 195 pounds as a 16 year old. And then I came to, to, uh, left their camp the next year and I was weighing in at maybe 215, 217. So I really put a lot of weight on. And um, and that 17-year-old year was oh my God. I mean, I believe with exhibition, it was over 40 tilts. 
and uh, and in not very many games, 56 or 57 games that year. So I was going all the time. I mean, and there must be, I'm going to read this quote and then I'm going to ask. Page 33, I love the game of hockey. I never dreamed about being a fighter. I wanted to be a, the player I'd been in midget, making a difference on the scoreboard, not in bloody knuckles. But after my first few fights that year, it, it started to sort of just roll. I was adopting the gladiator mentality and nothing was going to stop me. <laughs> that, you know, you're, you're, now you're starting to make a decision. There's a key and it's yeah. being turned. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, and yeah. I mean, it must be like, we talk about addiction, like, you know, like there's, there, there must be something addictive about that. You know, there's, there's no chemical well, involved other than adrenaline, but I mean, I, you know, t- is there a comparison? But here's the deal, TR. I was so fortunate with the hockey gods on my side that, and I'm not bragging here, but, you know, in junior, I didn't lose a fight. I may have tied, but if I would have got fucking knocked out or, or beat up real bad as a 16-year-old fighting those fucking 20-year-olds that I was fighting, my course would have been fucking changed. I was rolling with confidence, man, because I was fucking kicking ass. So it was like, this is fucking great. But at the end of the day, I was so lucky that I didn't get caught on the fucking button and KO'd because that would have changed my mentality. Uh So I was rolling all the fucking way from junior. I fought, you know, a few guys again in junior that we had good fights. I didn't win them, but I never got spanked until I got to the National Hockey League. When and literally, it was, there's the toughest but, 20, 25 hockey and players I re- on earth. And, I, and the first fight I ever lost real bad was in Tampa one night. My first year, we were playing Ottawa on a guy named Denny Vial. Yeah. Fucking Denny goes, goes, we're going. And I said, yeah, you bet. And as we're going, he's backing up and he's getting out of his jersey. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, fuck. And as he's getting now, I have nothing to grab onto. And he is throwing bombs. And it would, I skated to the penalty box thinking to myself, holy shit, I, I just got the shit beat out of me in front of a lot of people in my first year in the show. And um, it changed, something happened to me after that night that I, that I respected. I respected the fighters more because I was having such an easy time up until yeah. that point. I can see that. Um, yeah. And speaking of junior, so this is funny, uh, Mizey. You don't know this story from, you, you, and I bet you, you, there's no way you could remember it. It happened so long ago. But in my life, it was big. So I was 16 years old, and my first year in Tri City was 93, 94. Other than a few games as a 15 year old, like whatever it is, free pass player. Um, uh, so it's about three quarters of the way through the year. And we were in last place. We finished in dead last place. But halfway through the year, they realized this, and they traded a lot of guys out, and they kept, you know, the nucleus, myself, Chad Cabana, mm-hmm. Surrey, Lankow, a lot, lot of guys from Edmonton. And we were, we were going to lose, but Jerry Johansson was director of our player personnel. And Rick Kozabek had got, gotten brought in as the coach, and, and we really mm-hmm. weren't doing much i was actually i was a 16 year old leading our team in fights too more more out of like smart mouth i never ever i lost lots of them i lost lots of them but i remember I, you yep, yeah i do so we were playing against spokane and you you'd been traded there 
And all I'd heard was these stories to these points. And I'm like, all I'd heard, right? Like, I mean, and they were, like I said, Paul Bunyan stories. And with no even videos to attach it to, at least now you see a video of someone beating somebody up, but they'll like smile and interview after and you do they look human? Like to me, you were just a guard dog. You you were not human. You And anyway, so Jerry came in and he snapped between the second and third. He went around to every player. Like I've heard some coaches do. I've never seen it since. And he wasn't our coach. He was just a director of player personnel. Jerry's in your book. He, he's an agent now. He, yeah. Um, so Jerry goes around to everybody anyway, and he shit on everybody and he did he kind of gave me a big a glowing review for the time he he went around and he said and our leading fighter is a 16 year old and then he looked at my face and he said but if you're gonna fight at least win <laughs> so i went out i looked around the room mizey i swear to you I, i'm gonna find it i got a stack of vhs's over there and i'm gonna find it it's over there i put the, one of the only times I ever did it, I put tough skin all over my hands. I put Vaseline <laughs> on my face. I taped up my wrists. I took off my shoulder pads. I said, no I'm going way. out and no. I'm doing it. <laughs> so I'm not, like I said, by nature, I'm not usually dirty. Well, I know I'm not. So, but I went out with a mission. The only time I've done this, I went down, the puck was in front. I shot it in. I think your goalie was maybe Jared Daniel. I shot it into his pads. And then I took my stick and I, w I would have been a 10 game suspension. I didn't get anything. I might've got a five. I slashed him right over the glove, knowing that you were coming in. But what happens? <laughs> you come in and grab me and give me one in the back. Ryan Marsh jumps in. You pair <laughs> off with Ryan. And yeah. I got Valerie Burry and Ryan Duffy. <laughs> no way. Oh, yeah. Did I was you? Like, <laughs> and it, went, it went up. Line brawl. And I I'd really love to see that. I didn't. I'll show it to you. Not that I wanted Brent Myers, but I wanted to prove a point to Jerry and everybody else. It's it's crazy that at 16 too that you had that sort of, you know, instinct to do that. Um, I remember we went into PA. I was a 16 year old and there's a guy named Lori Billick. And yeah. he was a def he was a big fucking tough defenseman. And I, I think he was. I think he was 20 at the time. It was, he was a, an overager and we were winning and there was two minutes left to go in the game. And, uh, Haji threw me out there. Anyways, we, we ended up scrapping and, uh, I ended up knocking him out. And, um, I just remember saying to myself at that point, Oh boy, I've really opened up a can of worms. Yeah. Like, like I've really fucking opened up a can of worms now. Like, and so for me, I knew that, like I talk about in the book, once the train started to get going on the tracks, that didn't stop until I was done playing hockey. Um, that's wild. Um, off topic, but kind of on. So my, my first WHL game ever, I was called down as a 15-year-old. So Kimby Daniels was playing, Jason Bowen. Mm. It was 92, 93. Dean Tilgen. Uh, Dean, I actually got traded for Dean, uh, but and I ended up playing with him for a little bit on my line with Lanks. Um, Paul Langer was there, yeah. Um, yeah. So I first shift, and I've got this over there somewhere. It's playoffs, right? They're playing Portland. The playoffs. They're down three games to nothing. They call me in Quinnell. Come on down. I go down. What's going on? Uh, um, Bob McCavin says you're in the lineup tonight. I go over to Todd Klassen. God rest his soul. Oh yeah. I said Todd. What, give me the lowdown on the other team. He said, well, there's a couple guys over there you don't go near, John Baduk and Kale Hulse. First shift, 
I squared off with Kale Hulse. And he oh, kicked, he, ooh, he's oh, lefty fuck. too. Fuck, he's a big, le- he's a he's big about, lefty. Yeah, he's, yes. he looks like you out there. Like he's he's monster. He's yeah, and monster. He threw hard, fast lefts. My yeah. first ever WHO. <laughs> and again, I'm a six. I'm a fifteen year old third overall in the Western League draft. Like I'm sure some of them must have been going, geez, because it wasn't quite the same same mentality you and I have. But like people were yeah. going, oh Jesus, you know what's he doing? Oh. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. but that. But that was no different than a guy like Matthew Barnaby when he got yeah. into the National Hockey League, right? He's not a very big guy in the fucking guys he fought. Yeah. Like it yeah, was exactly. in people don't realize about Matthew Barnaby. Nope. Like he doesn't get enough credit. And about all of them. The, the fucking balls on that man when he'd line up against Grimson. Yeah. fucking anybody he'd fight it anybody to get the shit beat out of him and then and, he'd fight him again. like it was yeah. inc- he'd have 375 fucking penalty minutes people playing wonder, buffalo you know, how do you how, yeah like, how do you play that many years i'm like well you know, I know. you love to and have he was that a on your good team hockey, and he was a yeah. good hockey player too <laughs> yeah, you know i, I know remember the- i i remember buddy we lined up we we're in tampa one night and we we're warming up and i'm stretching on the blue line or the red line and he comes up and he's got two different fucking skates on. He's got a Nike and a Bauer. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> that sounds just like him, though. I'm like, Barney, you got what are you doing with the two different jets on, man? <laughs> he's like, I just want to try them out, see which one I like better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God damn it. I got to put that in my next book. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, right? Like, who wears two different style of skates? Like... That's what uh, I anyways, yeah. Um, I miss the old boys. Fuck. So, and now, so speaking of Tampa, you're in Tampa. I can't believe this. So you show up in Tampa as a young player, like out of shape. You're pretty out of shape. You're using camp to get in shape, like they did in 1972. Oh yeah. It's not quite what it is today in the 90s, but it was a little bit more than show up. Oh, it, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so Mano Rayon beats you on the VO2 max test. That's right. Yeah. You know. It, it, not saying that girls shouldn't but you're you're a tough guy you're you're supposed to have stamina if there's one thing that they want to have is a good vo2 max so well well our two tough guys that year were a guy named rudy post check yeah, a guy named basil basil razzle dazzle mccray mm. and you want to see those guys with their shirts off fucking chiseled chiseled right like in yeah. great shape and i show up 226 pounds with fucking 19 body fat <laughs> God, <laughs> all I'm doing is eating like craft dinner and going to Hooters and having beer and wings. Like I didn't know anything about working wow. out, you know, but and, again, uh, you've been successful. That's see so- that that's the whole thing is that things were actually working out for me still for some crazy reason, yeah. you know, like they worked out right into the NHL. Like usually for- people get called on that when they're 15. <laughs> Yeah, you're going through like you're, if you did get hit on the button or you couldn't keep up, it would have been different. But you literally, you're you're the most successful that you could be at this point, and you've done nothing. And I've literally, yeah, I've rode like half a kilometer on the stationary bike. <laughs> <laughs> Holy fuck! Oh but, man! So, yeah. at what point did you get sent to Atlanta? Oh, so I just remember we. Uh, I was the last cut. Uh, of that year so sorry as an 18 year old i get sent back to junior um 19 year old back to junior um but then i get called up to atlanta the atlanta knights of the ihl after spokane after we lost out in the playoffs and uh, we won the turner cup 
uh, that year. It's fucking amazing. Oh, so much fun. Um, and then um, I went to Tampa the next year and Phil actually, he just commented on my, my shape. He goes, you're fucking in terrible shape, Brand. Like you have to start working out. So I go, I get sent down and within two, three weeks of the season, I'm, I'm on a breakaway and a guy trips me and I, I, I put my feet up to stop and I hit the post and my foot's just the other way. It's pointed the other way, missed the whole year. And then came back the next year and I'm sorry, as a, I'm sorry. I got called up as a 20 year old. Um, and I, uh, that's right. I got called up as a 20 year old and I, and I finished the rest of the year in Tampa. That's what it was my first. Yeah. And then the next year I got sent down because of my conditioning. Um, and then, uh, broke my ankle. So later on in your career, people have to monitor you because you got to get piss tested and you're still, oh, you figure yeah. out a way around that. When you're, when yeah. you're down there in, uh, in Atlanta, it's, um, Buck, Buckhead, right? Buck, Buck. Uh, Buck, Buckhead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are, are people noticing that you're boozing? Like, you know, well, and had the, had the, had the drug started at that point? Uh, yeah. At 20, I tried my first line of cocaine. Um, I fell in love with it, but when I went to Atlanta, there wasn't a lot of blow is it, it was doing some ecstasy with the strippers down there. They love the ecstasy more than the Coke. Um, so I was really loving the, that little pill. And, um, what were you, so what was that again? Well, like, so was, was it on the radar with Tampa that you were, you know, oh, you were starting to have, too yeah, many yeah, it was for sure. Because I, I just remember constantly, you know, the, our coach would tap me on the shin pad and say, Mizey, you know, you reek today. Like, you know, you really got to start taking care of yourself. And we had a veteran on the team who I love till this day, Gerard Gallant, old Spud. Oh, nice. And Cause Spuddy got sent down and, uh, Spuddy would try to talk to me too about, you know, Hey kid, like, like I played with a guy like you in, in Detroit. And, um, if you don't start getting your act together, but I never changed. Like I changed for a week. That's what I can't know? believe. Even <laughs> billets in, in, uh, your billets uh, going back now. I don't want to go back to junior, but you do. You, you know, you you seem to get all these chances. First of all, the judge lets you off. I mean, if you fucked yourself before you went to Portland, he could have kept you out. It would have oh. been all over before your first game. Oh, then buddy. your boots. You promise no more drinking. Four days later, it says I was shit faced. Yep, right? yep, yep. And so, there's so many things. There's so many parts of the book that when I talk about angels or hockey gods on my shoulder or whatever kind of you want to call it. I had so many of them that got me to, to the National Hockey League. And then for seven general managers in the NHL to keep giving me NHL yeah. contracts, it's yeah. like, how the fuck did that happen? Like after stage two and after stage three, and it's just like stage four. And it's like, here you go. Stay sober. We're going to give you another deal. You yeah. I, I couldn't <laughs> believe what I was reading because I knew little bits of that story, but I just figured it all came to a climax and, you know, you kind of beat it up till then. And then it all came to a climax, but no, no, it caught. No, oh. I'm, I'm going to say a dozen if there's one and continually, now, and I, and I do want to get into that, but before I get there, you go from Tampa to Philly, and there's a couple mm -hmm. of, you have a little, I mean, and th this is all going on. You're, you're in a way, spiraling more and more into addiction, but yeah. it's easier and easier to mask. So, or it's, I shouldn't say easier every day, but it's easy to mask in the situation that you're in. 
than it would be for someone who, say, was a teacher. Um, so you meet David Letterman. You go there with Eric Lindros. I just want to know, a little off topic, but how was that? I mean, I, I did not know that. You, Eric gets yeah. asked to go in, did he? Because around that year, he was I mean, one of the he, best players, Hart Trophy. Yeah, and it was the Olympics that year, too, ah, 98. Yes. The Olympics. It was ni- 98, so they were trying to promote it a bit, right? But Big E just uh, said, hey, Knuckles, uh, <clears throat> I'm going down to New York to go on Letterman, and you want to ride with me? And, uh, you know, listen, I looked at Eric um, like I looked at Gretzky. And I'd, I would have never let Eric know that. But he was just an absolute god to me. Um, so when I get there, he's a year older than I am. And, uh, you know, I believe he had a girlfriend a little from time to time, but for the most part, we were hanging out sort of single yeah. guys. So going to New York to meet Dave, um, was, uh, was incredible. Like there I am, uh, after the show, you know, uh, uh, giving Dave a Jersey and, uh, shaking his hand and <clears throat> going back to, uh, Philly in the limo. It was just, it was wild. It's awesome. Um, and uh, Biggie, I'm, I'm sure at, that was my first NHL game was against Philly, and I'll never forget the Legion of Doom. Oh wow! Just very, very impressive. And I looked at him the same way. I mean, and and still, there's not much like Eric Lindros if you look no. at that package. No, but he looks at you one time after getting hit, and he literally didn't know who you were, did he? Because I, I, oh yeah, yeah. I just remember asking our trainer. I go, "Where's E?" And they said, "Oh, he's in the shower." And uh, when I walked in there, I remember uh, he was showering and he had, he had some of his gear on still and he didn't know who I was. And uh, he says, who me, the hell are you? And how did you get into our dressing room? That's how did wild. you get it? How did yeah. you get in here? Yeah. That just goes to show you, well, that happened to me. Actually. I just posted a fight of when I was 17. Um, I watched junior. those. Mizey. Yeah. I watched those. Yeah. Okay. So the fight that you see uh, with the guy from Kamloops, Chris Murray. Chris Murray. I know Murray. I played okay. with him. I, I saw Murdoch. him. I was on the ice. We had a line brawl in Boston. He went toe-to-toe like that with Jeff Hodgers. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're watching that fight, he the refs are breaking it up, and they the refs tell me it's over. Cut him. Yeah. yeah. And he fucking get and he drills me yeah. right in the face. Anyways, I went. I was so concussed from that punch. Wow. I walked into the Kamloops dressing room and sat down and thought I was in our dressing room. The trainers had to come in and pick me up and take me back into the dressing room. I started to get really cold. They put blankets on me and I, I started throwing up that night, but that went from Chris Murray, that sucker punch. That was so, so what my point is, is that big E I could see how, when you get hit like that, you're just completely out of it, you know? Yeah. Oh no. I mean, that's, that's great to know uh, for even a lot of hockey fans, because at the time, remember, he got a bit of shit, even within the organization. I'm not I don't, I don't know who, but I remember people saying, well, does he need to take this time off now? Of course, people see. Yes. Yeah. Him and his brother. I had it at the time. I missed 96, mm. 97 with post concussion syndrome. I couldn't see straight. Um, I went to I ended up going to the Mayo Clinic when it was said and done. Pat LaFontaine called me. I'd never met him. Talked me through it. I had a bad time with it. And. and no, a lot of people don't realize that's right. That there's your friend right there and you can't recognize him. That's something. Yeah. You know, that's a scary it, thing with your brain. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, I felt, right? I felt horrible. Um, so now things are starting to get out of control as far as drinking right around now. I'm, I'm getting into part two of your book 
Now you you give yourself you call Dan Cronin, do you? Yeah, that and was after the Flyers uh, released me um, in March. That was literally right after the Lindros hit in Pittsburgh. We played them the next night in Philly, and then I went out to a bar think or a lounge thinking I could just hide in the corner. And uh, wow. there was a there was a scout Amazing. that was having a beer at that same lounge. And Clarky called me in, and he goes, "Well, you're fucking done." He goes, "I told I told you I wasn't fucking around." He goes, "We just put you on waivers. You're going to you're going to the Phantoms." And then the Phantoms, Paul Holmgren had to pull me aside and go, "All right, I just got a call from Clarky. You've been here two weeks. Uh, you fucking hammered all the time, and uh, we're we're just just pack your shit and go home. We're done. We're gonna release you." And how much and money the, was on the line here? Well, I was only making well, I was making about four. 25 us at that point i believe so was, i mean shit that was in 1997 or eight it was, you you knowing though if you stayed off the booze that you'd make half a million dollars or oh more. yeah yeah for sure um and i didn't know anything about uh the program or nothing other than i needed to make a call yeah. and then uh cronin showed up and said don't worry about nothing just we'll get your apartment packed. Just let's get on a plane and head to LA. And then that was my first, uh, I guess, glimpse of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I actually thought AA was a trucking transport company. Okay, yeah, that- <laughs> like, I'm like, you want me to fucking start driving a truck? <laughs> you, yeah, you were going in there, just no clue. No How clue. long did you stay? Well, the first time was, uh, I, th- I was told uh, around... 30 days because 28 to 30 days and then they kept me in for 90 and i was i was very upset about that the and uh, i talk about it what you know where i you know buy some blow the day that i got out the day you get out yeah day so describe uh, that what what's going through do you even remember what it's like to think like that getting out oh yeah like so you weren't really proud of being sober you were just putting time in oh i fucking hated it i oh okay i looked at all the people that were in rehab as fucking losers um i wasn't a loser um i i equated alcoholism and drug addiction with people that had paper bags under a bridge and I didn't, didn't your know. dad reiterate that when he talked no to you? my dad was embarrassed of the fact that i was in treatment god that must be we didn't, hard you could, you we didn't talk a lot uh, and uh so i just remember there was a guy in uh in treatment that i knew that he sold coke i'm like dude i'm getting out of this fucking nut house in a day I go, I need a bag of blow to drive. I go, it's a four day drive, man. I need at least an eight ball. <laughs> do little bumps all the way home. <laughs> so, uh, as I do, as I buy the bag of Coke, I'm snorting it. And we cross the Canadian border and uh, rich winner calls me. Congratulations. You know, uh, Dean Lombardi called and they just offered you a, a two year deal at uh, one point to two or 3 million one way. As long and I'm as I'm like, you- Oh, I'm like, Oh, great. He no, he didn't warn me. So I show up that day, the next day in Edmonton and he goes, okay, well, the contract is here. You got to come sign it. So as I walk in, he goes, um, before you sign it, um, there's a urine tester that they have coming for you in in one hour. And I went, holy fuck. Jesus. And I run, I go, I'll be right back. And I run down to the shopper's drug mart and I grab this Visine. Cause I thought that if I poured it on my finger and pissed over my finger, the Coke wouldn't show up. And I did, I ran down, I bought it, came back up and the urine tester came. 
He was a good one though. He, he said, he said, pull your pants down, um, grab, take your right hand and pull it above your head and put your left hand above your head as well, please. So wow. there I am pissing in this cup and no I can't get the, I can't get, and I know I'm dirty. And they know that the only way you can be dirty is if you got into something in the last two days. That's right. They told oh me, they told me, they said, we don't want you driving home. We think you're going to relapse. And I'm like, fuck you. What, you're yeah. telling me I can't drive my fucking car now? You get like, your backup. Not realizing <laughs> that this is like chance number half dozen already. It's already, yeah. It's yeah. it's it's chance nine or eight or whatever it is. And uh, and I got, and I, and I came up dirty for cocaine. And then they gave me another chance because I was crying. And I said, please, it's my first one way. Don't do this to me. You know, this is worth 1.6 million Canadian or whatever. Yeah, man. And they go, okay, Brant, we're going we're gonna to give you one more shot here, bud. And you got to go to an A meeting every day in San Jose during training camp. And I was. And then we went, all went out for a team function at a bar. And I just remember ordering like this a This was in camp, right? Just yeah. a couple of weeks in. I, I remember ordering a double vodka and OJ so that nobody would know that I was drinking. And then I had a bouncer by the neck. And the Gary Suter was grabbing me by my jacket going, Mizey, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. It's all I remember. And then uh, Doug Wilson knew the owner. And then they called me and said, get back on that plane. You're going right back to the same rehab for another fucking, we don't know how long. So I went back for another 90. So is there any, I mean, you know, you, you knew that this was worth that much and you figured you could just, logically instead of just drink orange juice have vodka and orange juice because it's disguised right it's amazing yeah. where your head goes yeah um so i'm going to read you a quote from page 102 so at this point you come back out of rehab for the second time with san jose you go to the there's all-star game break and you test and you shoot 45 miles an hour for those that don't know that's extremely poor god peewee can shoot it i, I think most peewees 45 because you you get just you get all fucked up right now you're anyway i'll read the quote i knew the day he arrived at the airport you're talking about flying your buddy down sean during the all-star break i mean if anybody else knew, I mean, <laughs> the writing's on the wall. I knew the day he arrived at the airport that I was going to relapse. When he showed up, we went right to the bar and started drinking. It didn't take me long before I was hammered. Since, since by then, I'd gone over four months without a drink. I could feel the booze lighting up every cell in my body, sort of like the way Percocets would make everything okay when I was in physical agony. But alcohol is different. It's more like jumping out of an airplane. It's euphoria. And once you make the decision, it's out of your control. It pulls you along where it wants you to go, just like gravity. And you knew this, and you took four months. Now, you're months at a time, and each time, you still haven't thought, you know, maybe I should stop. You're thinking the system's fucking you, are you? You know what? For people that don't understand addiction. So it would be like, <clears throat> you know, <sighs> meeting or, or, or falling in love or seeing an absolute fucking beautiful girl. Okay. Now this girl is sitting next to you on a couch in lingerie with her legs spread and you can't fucking touch her, but you want to. 
You want to touch her every fucking second. And it's all there and you can't. And I can't, right? But, so for those four months, I wanted to touch it every second, but I I couldn't until I pulled the panties down. It's the best way, (laughs) best way I can explain it. That, well, that is because what's happening, that, that actually is not a bad way to explain it because, you know, when you think logically about that, I've often said, you know, like we, we, you know, you grow up with guys, you're on a bus, you know, you get a, you go into a town and you, you cab like an hour out of town or out of the way just to get a hand job or something. And you're like, you know, what the fuck am I doing? I'm not even thinking straight, but, it, yeah. but it's, it's that sexual. Yeah. It's, that, it's the lust a, that keeps you going. So it's, it's, you know, it, it was such a strong love affair that I had with booze and drugs that it was no different than, you know, uh, you know, partying with a, whatever it may be with a a very attractive woman, like, like women are, you know, that's a seductive and adrenaline in itself and that fired drug cocaine and Jack Daniels or whatever it was that I was drinking fired the same, the same, you know, cells that were going off for me. So it was, it was pretty powerful. Well, I think there's a lot going on too with, with the role, like, you know, because you're, you you go out you, you know what it's like to go out and be half nervous for a hockey game let alone the NHL and then to go out and actually like win the fight and you it's such a it's it's such mm-hmm. like it's a rush man it's a rush so you're you're doing that every few nights mm-hmm. or you you are going out and and you you're going through a lot emotionally so you're outside of having a chemical dependency you you want to get away from it like I don't have the chemical thing but I've been depressed and I've wanted to drink and I have drank for three and four weeks straight. Uh, mm. And and so you're kind of going through all that at once. And, you know, like you said, the Coke, the Jack, and the women, the women, there's also a correlation there. Mm-hmm. So this, to say any one of the above is kind of hard for me because I don't know what it's like to be to chemically addicted to something, although I really relate with a lot of this, Mizey. I really do. But that's what it fascinates me. Not only that you had so many chances, but that finally, finally, you, you came out of it. Now, before I were almost there, you were going out with a girl, Megan, down there. She finds because, you you know, the, there's a urine tester. I never even knew that this existed. I've known people go through the system. I did not know that there was urine testers who were employed to be fucking urine testers that looked the other way. Well, that wasn't let's get let's get it let's set the record straight. That's not on the national hockey league. Like I, I mentioned in the book, there's a bad apple in every fucking car. Oh yeah. I don't think right? it's on the national hockey league but, either. I just think this guy, you know, there were, yeah, there were, there were a, a few guys two in general that, uh, I believe, you know, could be wrong, but I believe they knew what I was going to the bathroom to do. I don't think that's on the national hockey league any more than your, Drinking and driving was on the National Hockey League. That's what I mean. How do you know? How do you know? Yeah. So they, you know, they, like I said, those guys were just, you know, the guy in the book, fat bastard. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't believe, uh, you know, that I was, uh, (laughs) he was letting me go to the bathroom in exchange. Uh, I'd I'd give him some tickets and, and there he is standing on the glass with a big gold Meyer sign. (laughs) Just amazing. So all this happens. And you manage, you manage to go in and you're still, you know, the, the theme of addiction and 
spiraling is, is so prevalent, but still there's some great moments that, you know, because I know, Brent, my, you know, you weren't always frowning here. There was there was great times. You go into New York, you fight my good buddy Darren Langdon twice, yeah. and you score a goal yeah. in Gretzky's last year. Tell oh. us about that game. Oh, my Lord. You know what? That's, for me, uh, the two games that stood out, three games. My first goal, uh, my first fight, which would have been uh, in my first game. And then that game against Gretz. And I just remember we were in New York, and the puck got iced, and I hit Jeff Bukaboom pretty hard. And the next shift, Langer comes out. And he's fucking, he's a shark at this point. He's going to, he's coming after me. And I just remember I was at the end of my shift and he goes, my we got to go. And I'm like, Langer, fuck, can we go later? He's like, no, 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 we're going now. <laughs> so the first fight we just <clears throat> sort of grab and I don't know, we sort of fall down and we're laughing on the ice. I go, oh, fuck. He goes, he goes, oh, we're going to have to finish that. Right. I go, yeah, no problem, bud. So for two minutes, I'm in the box and I'm seeing Gretzky out on the ice. And I'm, I'm going, what's, what's happening right now? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, and as soon as the, the, we get out of our, out of the penalty box, we score off. And I just remember, cause again, you got to remember it wasn't in very good shape. So after about 30 seconds, maybe 45 at the most, I start to gas out. Well, and, and he, that's his bread and butter. He can go and for he's, and he's like fucking starting. <laughs> yeah. like, like he's an octopus. I'm like, how do I get free? Fuck Langer. He's starting to 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 come to life. And I could oh. hear the Ranger fans fucking starting to cheer. Yeah. And I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get this guy down somehow. And I think I grabbed his pants and I sort of put him to the ice or whatever. And the refs came in, and I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and then how I scored the goal was um in the third period, I Tony Granato had the puck and I was just skating to the net and I was in front of Richter and he took a shot and you know, I did, it went off my ass, but I got credit and I looked at the ref and I go, you saw that go off my ass, right? He goes, Oh yeah, don't worry. We're going to give it to you. (laughs) (laughs) That was my only, that was my only goal that year. Right. So I was all pumped up. And then I got, I think second star of the game that night, um, and then I went up to Artie, Kevin Stevens, and I said, hey, bro, can you ask, would you mind asking Wayne for one of his sticks? And uh, he goes, yeah, mine's. And he brought it out in the hallway, and it was just like, you know, oh, my God, I, I had one of his sticks. I wanted one for so long. And I, I still, ha- I sold it in my addiction. I did sell the Gretzky stick, but I bought, but I, I bought it back. You bought it back. That was your buddy. So he did give it back to you. I, I missed that. Yeah. that, that I told him, I, I said, one day, if I can ever make enough money, would you promise to sell it back to me? And he said, yes. And he did. Uh, uh, good on him. So now it brings us, it's um, August. I'm not sure exactly what year, early 2000s. Nashville calls. Mm-hmm. They want to give you 500. Just a little mm-hmm. note. You go five fifty. Was that your instinct for yeah. fifty thousand dollars? You had eight million chances. <laughs> yeah, you know, because if I wanted... not, if not, that Brant Myers at that time would have gone back and had to work at the golf course or wherever. And you're going. Oh yeah, at that time, yeah. But you know, I had a feeling they were pretty interested in me because uh, they did. I think they flew me down twice. Um, I think I said 550 or 600 to rich and they, and they, David Poyle said, well, if he doesn't sign, you know, in two minutes, we're signing Reed Simpson. 
Okay. And I go, I go done. I go 500. Let's go. Yeah. Fuck that. You know, I'm done with this negotiating. Not yeah. yeah. I'm just saying it, it's, you know, it's almost an overwhelming situation to be in when you think about it. Um, so this is around now you buy your place in Sylvan Lake. That next summer. Yeah. That next summer. Yeah. So. I got traded to the, I got traded to the capitals um, okay. at the end of January. Uh, I finished the year in wash and then uh, I went to Sylvan and bought uh, bought a house there. So Sylvan, for those who don't know, is a nice little place. It's a few minutes outside of Red Deer. It's a lake, obviously Sylvan Lake, but it's really cool. If you're in Newfoundland, think George Street meets Deer Park, maybe. It's a nice little communal area, a lot, a lot of happening stuff in the summer, which is when you would have been there for the most part, but you got neighbors and I gather that they got pissed off a little bit. I've heard about these legendary parties. Remember I go to Red Deer quite a bit. My oh, in-laws yeah. are actually from there. I'm, I'm, in a normal year, I would be in Edmonton and Red Deer, you know, a couple times. So I'd heard about this craziness. Just tell us a little bit about what went down out there. Well, it all started when I bought this house. Um, and I asked the realtor, uh, I needed my keys for the mailbox. I said, what's my address? And she said, it's uh, it's 69 Ravens Craig. And I go, I go, no, no, no. I go, no, seriously, what's my address? She goes, it's your, your house number is 69. <laughs> I go, oh, I'm, I'm so fucked. Yeah. So, so I get this big house, my neighbor, his name was Bob. And, uh, oh my Lord, I, I, uh, you know, I feel so bad about Bob. He had young daughters and, and, um, I had a hot tub out in the backyard and I'd have strippers back there, um, from Red Deer, uh, you know, with certain toys at around two, three in the, in the morning. And you'd see the lights go on in Bob's house, right? <laughs> off and on, <laughs> off and on, off and on. Uh, I bet. <laughs> he'd, he'd, he'd come over and, uh, and beg me to please turn the music down because his daughters couldn't, couldn't sleep and they could see what was happening in the backyard. Wow. And, uh, anyways, that was a shit show for a couple of summers at least, um, until the judge made me, um, uh, made me sell it. So is that when you get, you finally get tested again and, and, and you, you try yeah. to dilute your piss now? Cause you got no clean piss with, yeah, with water. They, they, they said you should be dead. <laughs> like wow. they're like, you've have, you've got way too much H2O in your urine and uh, we know that you've altered it. And then, um, I went away for another year, came back and then, uh, you went away yeah, for just, a year. Now, is it starting? Do you now start to say, you know, I, I do need to quit and that this isn't a joke. Oh, oh yeah. I was always struggling with, you know, cause I would have I mean, some AA, like the AA part. Like, yeah, I would have some sobriety and, and, and I still like the way that I felt when I was sober. Okay. Um, but I also felt like I, it was, it all it literally almost felt like a jail sentence to me. Like, how can you take away the one thing in my life that I don't think I can live without? Really, like, don't please don't do that to me. You know, let me have three beer just to get that feeling back again, because I can't, I can't have that feeling when I'm sober. Um, um so yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it put it this way: there are many points in the book that that you exp explain that, and a lot of it. It's hard for me to put into words, but it's an education. It's hard to be educated on all those things when you're young. Not maybe it wouldn't have helped, but 
little things like like you said getting hit on the button or or other people's feelings just being compassionate because you never really had to deal with much um you know things were coming easy even now mm. even now you're it's it's not coming easy anymore but you're still you're still being chased at by NHL teams and multiple teams um so now you sell your place in Sylvan okay mm. you, you this is we're going a couple years here Oh, three um, oh four, I think. Oh, three oh four. Okay. Yeah. You feel you're down and out. You sell it. You go to Cold Lake. Um, mm. You're up there for a few nights. You find yourself lost. You're with a girl in the car. You go upstairs. She breaks out crack, or some guy there did afterwards. Whatever. Yeah. You 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 run into it. Now, are you mm. feeling at this point? Are are you feeling? And I mean, you you. you apparently tried it with this guy you know well we were doing coke me and her her name was her name was brandy and um i just remember it was a long night and, and this guy was sitting at a at a table in a chair he never left and i came down at nine in the morning after smoking a big joint and uh because i wanted to, to keep this yeah. high going and he said uh, i don't have any powder he said but i got some hard stuff some crack and I just said, oh, okay. And I go, can I try it? So I hit the pipe. And um, as I'm blowing it out, blowing the smoke out, I fall to my knees. And my heart starts to race really hard. And I know at this point that I'm in big trouble. Wow. And uh, I, my head said, you need to leave the house and, and go get help. So as I'm walking down the street, my head, I start to go crazy. Like I can't think straight anymore. And I can't swallow because my throat feels like it's uh, clamping up and uh, my hands are sweating. And I just knew at that point that I, I was, I was dying. Like I was overdosing and uh, I went and knocked on a door and I just said, please call the ambulance. Cause I'm, I'm not doing well. And, and then that's when the ambulance showed up. Um, that's wild. Um, so, I have one one thing to ask that's off. It, I, I've I've left it out because there's one thing that really resonated with me in the book. I'm almost done. Thank you for answering all these. I mean, they're not easy questions to answer and relive. Um, there was a time we spoke about it. Maybe that's why I didn't write it down. One of these times, chances you get, you're nine months sober and you go to Edmonton, the Westin. Tell us about, I mean, that to me is the one that blows me away more than anything. You're nine months sober. You yeah. drive to Edmonton. You're waiting to sign a contract. All you have to do is see the yeah. NHL, the piss tester in the morning. And you, you go that night. Anyway, explain what happens. Yeah, it was, it was Dr. Dave Lewis. And he just told me, he said, hey, I'm going to be in. Uh, looks like you're up for reinstatement. Uh, but we, I need to meet with you just to, to, to tell Gary that you're ready to go or not. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Well, I was in Sylvan and I'm like, well, fuck, if I got to meet him at nine, I might as well drive to Edmonton and, and, uh, <clears throat> and get a room. So I'll be ready to, ready to go. And I thought, well, well, he's at the Westin, so I might as well get a room there. Cause that's really convenient. And then, uh, I was staying on the floor below him and I just was laying on the bed, just watching TV, you know, and, uh, I looked over at the mini bar 
and it had a key sticking out of it. <laughs> nine and months I, now reinstated. Yeah, this I'm randomly getting. This is nine months reinstated to earn a to earn a contract. Yeah, like I'm I'm ready to go get reinstated from stage three, which was almost impossible. And uh, I open the mini bar, and uh, the light comes on, and all these bottles are shining. And I thought to myself, you know what, Brent? Um, fuck, I mean, if you only have one or two drinks, I mean, that's not going to be that big of a deal. Like, you'll be able to be nice and clear for tomorrow. So I do. And then the next thing in my head said to me was, if I get some cocaine, if I only buy a gram, I could be in bed by one. That's, and then, that's how logic starts sounding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I just remember taking my visa at 8.30 in the morning, scraping the um, the glass table to get more cocaine. And my buddy goes, Mizey, don't you have a meeting with the doc in 30 minutes? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And he's like, you can't fucking go, man. Wow. He, goes, you're, he goes, you're a fucking mangled. I go, don't worry about it, bro. I said, I've been through this before. It's all good. <laughs> so I, that, I get, that's what blows me away right there. That's, yeah. that's incredible. And how you must have had tricks with the smell and stuff. I mean, well, there at that point, I, I just showered, brushed my teeth, uh, put some cologne, cologne under my ears. And as I'm walking up to the door, I'll never forget it. I knock on the door and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? And the door opens and he's like, hey, hey, Brandt, how are you? And I'm like, good. He goes, come on in and grab a seat. He goes, you want a coffee? I'm thinking, do I want a fucking coffee? Do you know how fast my heart's going right now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, I'm like, I should have said, I had enough coke last night to kill a moose. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> I should have said, you got any decaf? I'm fucking, <laughs> I'm fucking dying right now. Holy fuck. So, That's amazing. So, yeah, I sit down and, uh, and uh, it, we, I met with him for 30 minutes and I left and I just could not believe that he didn't fucking know. Like it was incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. It's yeah. truly amazing. And, not a great thing for someone that is well, pulling the wool over people's eyes to be successful at it and so good at it. Well, also, when I went back to Sylvan, he, he called me and said, okay, you're able to write that letter to Gary for reinstatement for stage you're three. You're drinking a case of booze. And I'm fucking, I've got cold beer next to me as I'm writing it. Wow. Like, like it's just, it, it's, dude, I, when I read this book for the first time, when it, came in my hands because I was editing so much. I could never get yeah, into yeah, a, I know, a, I know. a rhythm. You've yeah. done, you've done it TR until I physically read it by myself with nobody around. I didn't really realize, um, some of the shit like that I put myself through like, Oh, Oh, no wonder I deal with some anxiety and PTSD shit today, man, because yeah. the fucking stress level that I was going through was insane. You're going on your way now. All that happens. Um, you know, you, you, you've almost run out of chances, but a team at this point in the book now, I'm on page 193, going in chronological order for the most part, for people out there that haven't read it. So you're on your way to go to England. Mm. Uh, here's a quote. There was almost nothing left of the good I'd built in my life. You just uh, actually sold an $8,000 watch for $2,000 at the pawn shop. Mm-hmm. There was almost nothing or good. 
There was almost nothing left of the good I'd built in my life. All I could do in times of shame was get loaded. I'd be partying, laughing at times during the night, but there was that little voice saying, Brant, you're such a loser. Look at what your life has become. The way to shut that voice up was to down some Jack Daniels and snort a line. It was way too painful to address the situation. All I could focus on now was getting to England and playing some hockey. So you go over to England. You you drank almost every day over there. This is a disaster waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. So, A, the league is not what you thought it was. Mm -hmm. You're used to be not only being paid more, but being treated as more of a professional. So this Mm -hmm. must have been, I mean, if drinking was getting out of control, it must have been hard to take over there. Well, it was, a com- it was a combination of about 30 days where right before I left to England, they came and I came back from running and my, my Mercedes was uh, on a tow truck and they came to repo it. Wow. And I have no vehicle now. I have to find a ride to the pawn shop to pawn my watch just to get enough money for food to get down to England. And yeah, man, I was drinking every day when I was there for 20 some days. I got really sick too. Um, came down with strep throat and I was run down. And uh, down. you've been on a bender for a decade or more. Yeah, it was, it was really point. all coming. It was all coming to, uh, I noticed a red dot on my foot and I didn't think much of it. But later on, I was, my body was covered in psoriasis. I was really sick. And, uh, I just remember when they sent me home, I had nowhere to go. Like I didn't, I had nowhere to live. And my, my friends, uh, who I'm still really good friends with today. And I love them dearly. They said, come stay with us. So I went and lived in the basement, um, and asked to borrow my dad's old Jeep. It was a 97 Jeep Cherokee and, uh, fuck dude. It was thinking back then 13 years ago, it was, uh, I really get emotional talking about the end of it uh, right before I get sober because um, it was a very, very hard part in my life where I didn't really want to be around anymore. I, um, I'm one of my favorite quotes in the book. Thanks for bearing with me here. This is during that time. As I was praying, I couldn't stop crying. I've cried before, but nothing like this. It was flooding out and I couldn't control it. Then I had the most serene, amazing, warm feeling rush throughout my whole body. It was a feeling of you're done. It's all going to be okay. No more suffering for you, Brent. It was the first time in my life I felt that way, as if I knew with every cell in my body that I was done drinking and doing drugs. It was February 18th, 2008, and my life had just started. That's pretty powerful. Um, How did you know then? Um, And even, I know it's a struggle, but how... I'm not saying that it's, you know, mm-hmm. just all of a sudden, oh, I'm fine. I'm just saying, why now did you start considering I'm going to go the other way? Well, <clears throat> um, I think that I wanted to, um, before that, uh, a few days before that, I wanted to buy some heroin and uh, I wanted to shoot that. I wanted to start shooting drugs. <clears throat> Uh, because I just couldn't face what I turned into. And then once I got arrested that night at my sister's, um, when, it, when I went back and I did get on my knees and I, 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 was, I couldn't stop crying. And uh, I, about an hour after I was crying, I just, again, there was this feeling that just, I don't know what it was. It just, it was almost like 
Brant, your obsession is going to be gone from here on in if you decide to do the work. And I didn't know what work meant. I just decided that, yes, I'll do whatever it takes. And then the next day, ironically enough, the league called me again and said, we're willing to pay for your fifth treatment center. You need to get on a plane. And uh, yeah. Um, I can't believe it, Brent, because a lot of people would have been dead. And mm. I'm, it's emotional for me even reading this because and I got to be honest, I, you want pure honesty out of me? I don't know if I would have believed you at that point. I, I don't know. Oh, I, I, oh I, you mean the doctors? Yeah, or anybody. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nobody did. Dude, they didn't believe, even when I had two years sober and I was sending in proposals, they still didn't believe me. They said, Brent, you have had two years clean before. Yeah. Call us when you have five. So, look, you do. You, you All of a sudden, things turn around. One thing or another, maybe the rock, I, I skipped over that, but whatever, George, the rock hit you, hurt your orbital bone. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think the fighting stopping was the end of that anxiety. Now, all of a sudden, your career stopped, which probably seemed terrible at the time. But looking back now, a lot of different things are happening. And Chloe comes on the scene, your daughter. You start going to school in Calgary, right? You do an addictions course, which is amazing yeah. because you didn't have grade 12, did you? No, right. I, I did finish, I believe, grade nine. <clears throat> grade nine. So you had to go, because you're a smart guy. You know, you're well-spoken. Not every, I'd mm. say, you'd, you'd never say that, but I mean, you know, everybody goes through a different paths. So you go, did you find school hard or were you, were you mm. I mean, it must have been a good feeling. I went back when I was 30, 31. I went back and got a folklore degree. Like, I enjoyed the process. I would not have enjoyed it if I was 19 or 20, even yeah. hockey or no hockey. I just wasn't ready. I found when I went back, it was all right. But you're coming off all that negativity. It must have been a bit of a burst of, you know, positive light for you. It must have felt great, like its own kind of drug. It did. I also realized that that my my dream was to maybe one day work in the NHL. And in order to do that, when I talked to Bill Daly or Gary Bettman or the doctors, that I wanted to have that in my back pocket. I wanted to say, hey, I've done, you know, I've, dedicated some time to this um so i was going there with an end goal and purpose which was uh to work for the nhl one day um so for me and i was getting to learn about me like i i was actually like wow for the first time i'm really learning about why brant did all those things and what made me you know tick after chance after chance after chance um because there's a lot more than uh, people understand when it comes to, because the disease centers in the brain and uh, it's the phenomenon of craving and usage that uh, sets it off. And once that's set off, uh, most of us can't turn it, turn it off. Yeah. It's scientific, right? Yeah. You're not, you're, yeah. You're, it's, it's like a computer having a glitch yeah. in a lot of ways. Or, or, or the person that is completely obese, that's, you know, that weighs 400 pounds and they say to themselves that they're only going to have one bite of cake. I mean, it, and then they finish the whole, I mean, it, it's the same thing, gambling, you know, you're only going to spend a hundred bucks and you sell your fucking car. I mean, it, it, yeah. same thing. Yeah. So, you know, at that point you go back and you do actually, after all this, uh, for all those chances, a record number in the NHL, there's been a lot of players come through. You finally, the door breaks down. 
you you get a job with the Los Angeles Kings. Mm-hmm. You're working with players. My favorite of all that is when Drew Doughty said, "Hey, what kind of player were you?" That's my <laughs> yeah. favorite of all. But in my mind, anybody during my era, everybody knows. Who they, every, oh, I would have been taken aback. What you don't? Yeah. But now yeah. you you started working with them, and how was that at first? I mean, the players must have been a bit oh. closed off. I would be closed off. They were, they were, they really were. I just remember having to give a speech and, uh, oh my God, when I walked up to that room in the theater room and I looked in the front row and there was Daryl Sutter, Kopitar, Doughty, Brown, uh, Matt Green. I mean, I'm looking at all these guys that just won a Stanley cup, you know, and Daryl's my favorite coach. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, like I'm actually talking to the, to the LA Kings, you know? Yeah. yeah and right. I was going to faint and my head said, dude, if you faint, you ain't getting this job. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not going to look too good. So um, anyways, I held it together and um, yeah, yeah, man, listen, the uh, dressing rooms are, I get it. I know how dressing rooms are, but I think I had a bit of street cred. Um, once the Kings did a video on me uh, and the players got to, to watch what I used to do for a living and what I went through in the NHL uh, with the lifetime ban and all that. And they're like, Oh, okay. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll open the door a bit for this guy. You know, you know? and we've just side note. So we, we've no that, that, that's great. But if people, I love that that happened, but if, if, if you're wondering a lot why you get that street crate and that respect, because I know you sometimes you forget and, and you play with these certain our era was, was really tough and you come through, but I had a friend, it's funny here that doesn't know you from Adam. And when I posted that the other day, he said, Oh, I read that. He said, you know, Brent Myers too. He goes, he must've been the toughest player that ever played. I said, well, yep, you really, really, really tough. I said, why? He goes, all those chances. He goes, they wouldn't give you those. Ch- they wouldn't give a lot of players. Those. And I'm like, no, you're right. That says a lot, you know, like you have over 150 games played, but my Z, the reason that you kept getting those chances, cause you were so good at it. Right. Uh, and I, I know that that might be a catch 22 in your mind, but you're also like, I played against you in Spokane, my Z, and you had almost you're a lot of points. I can't remember 60 out points. And you, you know, you, you were a big, good, tough winger. Like, and I, and I think had it not gone that way, which everybody has a path, I'll get into that in a second, but, um, you know, if I was a player, like, I think you were selling short. If it was today's game. Yeah, there was a spot, but if it was today's game, you wouldn't have been gone like some players because you could only fight. No, I I would have been like an Anderson from Montreal. Definitely. There's no doubt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean. I, I look at that too, and and people have to realize that um, as a tough guy, when you stepped on the ice in the National Hockey League or in the minors or junior, that you weren't really focused on the play. Yeah, like I was not focused too much on the puck. So until I my last year junior, when I played with Valerie Bure and Igor Volek Cheninov, and I was first line power play, I played fucking twenty minutes a night or whatever it was, eighteen whatever, and. Uh, I was a point of game guy and, uh, and I had to find eight fights that year. They weren't coming for me. I had to go find them. See, that's, that's what I remember. Cause yeah. I, I'm a left winger. You, you're, I'm playing against Spokane. You're out there. You're, you're getting all kinds of points. You're tough. You're so I, a lot of what I'm reading and then it got to happen. I mean, I did the same. Some games you wonder oh, why Terry, why'd you fight so much? I, I don't know, man. Like 
it just leads to there's a there's a series of things circumstances that lead you one place to another but yeah i think there's a place for bama i can't speak for everybody that era i don't want to insult anybody i don't like the word goon but mm-hmm. um you know wade belak went up there he was a defenseman we played against him right he ended yeah. up being a forward in the nhl I love God yeah. rest his soul, but you know, Brent was a forward. You are Whoa. a forward. You know, you're the same kind, right shot, big guy. Um, so um the road back goes well. Um right now, so you're and congrats on all that. The last couple of years now you've been spending time on this book, and I'm sure players still reach out. Your dad has since passed, and you've mm. You know, I know that wasn't an easy relationship, although the year you just told me when you were 12 years old seemed to have really resonate with you, which is great. Um, you know, are there lessons from that? You know, I'm sure you forgive him. You say you do. Oh, yeah. I wasn't a, I wasn't a <clears throat> very good son either. Like, I had to look at my part. I didn't feel that children had to look at their part on how they treated their parents, but I, but I did. And I was a fucking asshole to my dad. Uh, from time to time, I wouldn't keep my promises to pick them up or wouldn't show up. I, whatever it was, you know, if my daughter, Chloe, uh, did the things that I did in that book, I probably wouldn't be a very fucking happy, proud parent either. And that's what I had to look at my father. No wonder he wasn't proud of his fucking son. You know, how could you be dad? And, so when he died, um, really hard on me because uh, I really loved my father. You know, um, I know that we had our struggles, but m- my dad was my best friend in my life for a lot of years, you know, and I wish that he was alive um, to read the book uh, and be proud of me that, uh, you know, I, turned, I ended up turning my life around. Well, that's great. And I like, you know, the, the end is really powerful. Uh, the, the last chapter in the epilogue when speaking about that, because there's some things that, you know, you're just almost, it, it's almost nauseating the way at times you would figure coming at it from a King's angle or, or, or a kid's angle. His, I don't want to say the way he treated you, but in a way, and then, you know, those recommendate like saying that to a kid, you've got to lead the CHL. But, but the thing is, I don't think he meant it in a mean way, like a crazy way. No. You know, he was saying it at the best advice he could have given you. And even though it was weird, it was was out of love, even though he might not have said that. You know, that's at least what I took from it, Brent. I I see a lot of relationships in here. The the underlying themes in here are you and your family and, and, you know, your friends and even the Arnie's. In the mm. end, I don't know if he cleaned himself up, but he saw that you did, and you mm. must rub off as a po- positive influence. Your brother, Devin, right? You still mm. have a relationship with Devin. Yeah, yeah, Devin. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Arnie, my, I miss Arnie. I haven't talked to him in um, in a while. I did give him a book through a friend. Um, but, uh, you know, my grandfather died last June. Uh, he was the last really of sort of, you know, well, he, he raised me pretty much. And, um, you know, so as people get older and the world turns, people die. And, um, you know, I think for me, that's why I'm so proud of this book for myself personally, just because it also lets me remember them, 
you know, in a good way and let everybody else. Yeah. Okay. I talk about my mom and I talk about my dad, about stuff that happened in the first 150 pages, but I try to make it right in the last part of the book, you know? Well, so I don't think you could have articulated it any better. It was mm. my favorite part. The, the, mm. the beginning and the end. Mm. Um, how's your mom? Um, you know what? My mom is, I guess, yeah, she's struggling. She's, she's, she's struggled for, for a while with, uh, you know, I just feel really bad for her. She's, um, just got admitted into the hospital and they're trying to change her medication. So yeah, mom's not, mom's not doing great. For better or for worse, you know, you got where you are and they helped you sometimes mm -hmm. directly, sometimes indirectly, but I just love how you, you come full circle. I, I bet you AA, I, I don't know what AA is all about. I know what it is, mm -hmm. uh, but I bet you that must have had something to do with it. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple um, lighthearted questions now on our way out. Appreciate everything. Um, do you think there's life on other planets? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so do I. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I really be. and I really hope that they I really hope that there's like, you know, I they don't look know. like strippers. Well, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've seen some pretty nasty strippers too, though, bud. So <laughs> they don't all look the same. <laughs> uh, what are your favorite three bands? Uh, bon Jovi, Skid Row, and Shine Down. Maybe Bob Seger. I'm sorry. I'm, I got to throw Bob Seger in there. I'm a huge Bob Seger fan, and I do. I'm going to throw Fleetwood Mac in as my fourth. Whew. Okay, I like yeah. all four. Fleetwood Mac and Bob Seger would definitely be in my top. Oh yeah, Seger in my top ten, Mac in my top twenty. But I, uh, I gotta, I, I gotta remove. I, I think I might remove Skid to put in Meatloaf, the first album. Oh, beautiful. Oh, that, this oh. is. You must have been playing this during the Camaro, <laughs> Camaro days because I'm, I'm really Bad out of hell, baby. In here like four times. Bad I, out of hell. Oh God, I can see those frosted tips. <laughs> what was it? A what do you call it? A C top or a convertible? I wish didn't even have a sunroof, dude. The windows had to go down. That was it. That's it. You had a sports car. It's yeah. twenty eight hundred dollars here. We got twenty eight hundred dollars to work with, and we have to get a Big Mac combo every day with the girlfriend. That's right. Um, favorite restaurant on the road ever, like in North America. Does anything stand out? Oh, I was always a big Morton's fan. Ah, Mort Steakhouse. I yeah, did too. I like that. Yeah, I did like Mort's. They had the the shrimp, this these big shrimp that were coated in this coating with cream sauce that I just absolutely and their Caesar salads were really good. So I like uh, I liked Mort's as well. Um, what is your if you could go on a two week trip and take a cartoon character, who would it be? Probably Popeye. Popeye! <laughs> yeah. Wow, I've never heard that answer. <laughs> yeah. Popeye the yeah. Sailor Man. You know what? We need another Popeye. <laughs> Wasn't Robin Williams Popeye back in the day? Yeah. Oh, way, yeah. Way back. Awesome. He was, yeah. Um, he'd have a lot of the same themes as this book, that guy, uh, Robin Williams. <laughs> uh, and what? Okay, so what, what do you got coming up in the future here? What's for Brent Myers? What does the next year, year or two hold in store? You know what, Terry? I look at... Uh, you know, on, honestly, today, like I'm going to probably get a workout today. Um, I'm going to go see uh, my daughter and uh, make some dinner tonight. I don't know what I'm going to make. That's about it. I really don't look. I, I don't look at tomorrow. I, I have to focus on today. 
just a fantastic answer. Well, listen, um, I'm, I, I'm dead serious when I say it. I'm a little biased because I know you, but this painkiller is one of the best books I've ever read. I identify oh, with thanks, a lot man. of it. And I'm amazed by the stuff I don't identify with. And mm. uh, you honestly, more than anything, I can say I'm proud. I, I really am mm. to, to, that you got through this. Proud for you uh, that you got through this and you're such an inspiration. Timing is everything. I'm going to read you a quote now from one of my favorite band songs. The band is called The Birds. The song was a hit in the 1960s. It's the oldest lyrics in rock and roll because the lyrics are out of the Bible. It's called Turn, Turn, Turn. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. Well, Brent, you are positive. Your timing is uh, phenomenal. You went through hell. You made it here. You, you, you're, you did it who you are. You're leading, you're helping people, you're inspiring millions of people as time goes here. Everything that you went through, your dad and your mom and your, your addictions and the car mm. crashes and the <laughs> relapses and the stupid decisions and the women and everything that you've been through led us right here. There yeah. is certainly a time for everything. Mm. And you've turned that page, turn, turn, turn. I'm happy about where you are. Continue to inspire and we will see each other soon. I can't wait to sit down and have a nice Diet Coke with you and a meal of spaghetti <laughs> yeah. at the West Edmonton Mall at the old spaghetti place, is it? One of those Spaghetti places. factory. Yeah. After spaghetti all this factory. ends, I'll be out there, man. And right. I, I can't wait to get together. Congrats on everything. Thank you for doing the show. Thanks for writing that book. And thanks for inspiring so many, not only hockey players, but people across North America. Keep it up. Thanks, brother. I really appreciate it, TR. Thank you. No sweat. We'll see you soon. And that's a wrap, everybody. And there you have it, Brant Myers. That was a pretty powerful, uh, yeah. Um, I just pressed pause and went back and just read some of the notes I had and read some of that book. And um, it's amazing. He's uh, got a very strong will and uh, you know i've often said on this program that i'm not religious per se but i didn't say i'm not spiritual i think something happened to brand myers i think something inside something otherworldly something supernatural call it what you want okay here's me saying religion the definition of religion to me is this organized by humans it's almost like a some religions are like cults, right? Really, if you think about it. That's all I mean, is that I'm not into any specific religion. I don't believe that. I believe in all the teachings. You do unto others as you want done unto yourself. Like Penny Lane said, we, get two, we go by two. All you need is love and do unto others as you want done unto yourself. That's our two commandments. But I am spiritual. And I do think, for example, that uh, BJ knows that um, I had something to do with, with raising Tyson and that we all, you know, live in relative, relative, uh, positivity. Uh, I do believe those things and what, what, whatever I believe my grandfather who always wanted to see me and play in the NHL, I, he died when I was 13. I believe he knows that wherever he is, whatever entity, whatever, 
And I don't really want to think too much about it because we don't have any idea. But but stories like Brandt's make make me believe it. I mean, when when you read this book, it's literally a miracle that just one day stopped. Well, stopped one life and and started another. But anyway, thanks again to Brandt. Um, it was uh, to 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 come from that place that he must have been in uh, Cold Lake after a career that he didn't really get his fulfillment that he thought he would. Coming out, trying crack cocaine, running out all your money, selling your Rolex, pawning it off for a quarter what it's worth. I mean, that's it. He, um, he overcame all that and now inspires people. Um, like I said, not only hockey players. So I couldn't be any more proud of the guy. He was the toughest player. I continue to say that. Anybody listening to this from the WHL back then will agree with me that um, he was a ferocious caricature of a human that everybody was scared of and most people made put at number one in our dressing room. It was undisputed uh, as toughest in the league. And um, now after everything and, and how open and articulate he's been with his words and his conversations and how humble he's being. I think he's also one of the toughest mentally that I've ever come across. And I mean that. So thanks again, Brent. Uh, a lot of you were asking about uh, senior with his hockey card. You saw me post on Instagram. Uh, that was Ken Reed, our buddy with Sportsnet. So Ken has a beat on the hockey cards, right? So that wasn't an original. I believe they go back and redo some once in a while. And, he, you know, he knows all kinds of people on the inside now. So they often go back. And my understanding is reissue some sets that came out a long time ago. And I guess when you know people that work in the industry and can do that, um, they did one up for my dad. So, and a lot of you um, were asking about the Minnesota Fighting Saints. I got to take off, but anyway, that was a WHA team he played on. It is a great crest, and uh, he's got a lot of great stories. Um, the people who ask me these questions haven't tuned in. So I had my dad on when I did a podcast called Third Man In, that was about a year and a half ago, and that's probably our best episode. Then he came on another one with us. Eddie Shack was on there, and he came on there. And he was briefly on early, but I'm going to get my dad back on, and I'll interview him again now that uh, we got – our listenership has pretty much quadrupled since then, so that's what I'll do. But, uh, yeah, that, that was the whole hoopla was that he hadn't had a card. He, he was seeing basically a hockey card of himself in a WHA jersey, which was a rival league of the NHL for the first time in 49 years. That's how long. So it's, it's the same feeling I had when I was 19 or 20. 19, actually. Um, open up the hockey card. I mean, open up the hockey pack, hockey card pack. And it stayed in my pocket for about five years, and I still have them in there. I got up on my wall. Just a great feeling. Well, he, uh, he got to live it at 69 years of age. So that was great. Wedgwood Cafe, folks, check it out. They're up and running again. And I just had some fish tacos today. It's awesome. If you're in Newfoundland, come on down. If you're in St. John's, especially, obviously. Come on down. Green sleeves. 
uptown and downtown. Uh, and of course, if you're going to come to Greensleeves downtown for a bit of live music and a bit of grub and a beer, come on over to TJ's Pub. Uh, we've got some great music this weekend. We got some games on hand. And uh, if you're like Brant and you've given up the booze, well, there's some great live music. And we've got great food at Greensleeves, which also you can eat at Turkey, at Turkey well, TJ's Pub, as we now like to call it. Um, thank you to everybody who tuned in this week. And really, if there's one episode that I'd like to promote uh, what this person has, has done, it's Brant Myers, not only in his uh, working with uh, people who, who, who need the help, addictions counseling, but, uh, you know, this, this fantastic book that can inspire and has inspired people, multiple people, thousands every day, painkiller. It's in stores now. Grab it when you can. Great book, great guest, and have a great week, everybody. I know I am. Happy Easter. I'll see you soon. Head up, stick down. I'll catch you on the rebound.